Chapter One of Pierre and Jean. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Pierre and Jean by Guy de Maupassant, translated by Clara Bell, recording by Lee Smalley. Chapter One. Cha! exclaimed old Roland suddenly, after he had remained motionless for a quarter of an hour, his eyes fixed on the water, while now and again he very slightly lifted his line sunk in the sea. Madame Roland, dozing in the stern by the side of Madame Rosemilly, who had been invited to join the fishing party, woke up, and turning her head to look at her husband, said, "'Well, well, Jérôme,' and the old fellow replied in a fury, they do not bite at all. I have taken nothing since noon. Only men should ever go fishing. Women always delay the start till it is too late." His two sons, Pierre and Jean, who each held a line twisted round his forefinger, one to port and one to starboard, both began to laugh, and Jean remarked, "'You are not very polite to our guest, father.' Monsieur Roland was abashed and apologized. I beg your pardon, Madame Rosemilly, but that is just like me. I invite ladies because I like to be with them, and then, as soon as I feel the water beneath me, I think of nothing but the fish." Madame Roland was now quite awake, and gazing with a softened look at the wide horizon of cliff and sea. "'You have had a good sport all the same,' she murmured. But her husband shook his head in denial though at the same time he glanced complacently at the basket where the fish caught by the three men were still breathing spasmodically, with a low rustle of clammy scales and struggling fins, and dull, ineffectual efforts, gasping in the fatal air. Old Roland took the basket between his knees and tilted it up, making the silver heap of creatures slide to the edge that he might see those lying at the bottom, and their death-throes becoming more convulsive while the strong smell of their bodies, a wholesome reek of brine, came up from the full depths of the creel. The old fisherman sniffed it eagerly, as we smell at roses, and exclaimed, "'Christy! But they are fresh enough!' And he went on, "'How many did you pull out, doctor?' His eldest son, Pierre, a man of thirty, with black whiskers trimmed square like a lawyer's, his moustache and beard shaved away, replied, oh not many three or four the father turned to the younger and you jean said he jean a tall fellow much younger than his brother fair with a full beard smiled and murmured much the same as pierre four or five every time they told the same fib which delighted father roland he had hitched his line round a rowlock and folding his arms he announced I will never again try to fish after noon. After ten in the morning it is all over. The lazy brutes will not bite. They are taking their siesta in the sun." And he looked round at the sea on all sides, with the satisfied air of a proprietor. He was a retired jeweller, who had been led, by an inordinate love of seafaring and fishing, to fly from the shop as soon as he had made enough money to live in modest comfort on the interest of his savings. He retired to Le Havre, bought a boat, and became an amateur skipper. His two sons, Pierre and Jean, 
had remained at Paris to continue their studies, and came home for the holidays from time to time to share their father's amusements. On leaving school, Pierre, the elder, five years older than Jean, had felt a vocation to various professions, and had tried half a dozen in succession, but, soon disgusted with each in turn, he started afresh with new hopes. Medicine had been his last fancy, and he had set to work with so much ardour that he had just qualified after an unusually short course of study, by a special remission of time from the minister. He was enthusiastic, intelligent, fickle, but obstinate, full of utopias and philosophical notions. Jean, who was as fair as his brother was dark, as deliberate as his brother was vehement, as gentle as his brother was unforgiving, had quietly gone through his studies for the law, and had just taken his diploma as a licentiate at the time when Pierre had taken his in medicine. So they were now having a little rest at home, and both looked forward to settling in Havre, if they could find a satisfactory opening. But a vague jealousy, one of those dormant jealousies which grow up between brothers or sisters, and slowly ripen till they burst, on the occasion of a marriage, perhaps, or of some good fortune happening to one of them, kept them on the alert in a sort of brotherly and non-aggressive animosity. They were fond of each other, it is true, but they watched each other. Pierre, five years old when Jean was born, had looked with the eyes of a little petted animal at the other little animal, which had suddenly come to lie in his father's and mother's arms, and to be loved and fondled by them. Jean, from his birth, had always been a pattern of sweetness, gentleness, and good temper, and Pierre had by degrees begun to chafe at everlastingly hearing the praises of this great lad, whose sweetness in his eyes was indolence, whose gentleness was stupidity, and whose kindliness was blindness. His parents, whose dream for their sons was some respectable and undistinguished calling, blamed him for so often changing his mind, for his fits of enthusiasm, his abortive beginnings, and all his ineffectual impulses towards generous ideas and the liberal professions. Since he had grown to manhood, they no longer said in so many words, Look at Jean, and follow his example. But every time he heard them say, Jean did this, Jean does that, he understood their meaning, and the hint the words conveyed. Their mother, an orderly person, a thrifty and rather sentimental woman of the middle class, with the soul of a soft-hearted bookkeeper, was constantly quenching the little rivalries between her two big sons, to which the petty events of their life constantly gave rise. Another little circumstance, too, just now disturbed her peace of mind, and she was in fear of some complications. For in the course of the winter, while her boys were finishing their studies, each in his own line, she had made the acquaintance of a neighbour, Madame Rosemilly, the widow of a captain of a merchantman, who had died at sea two years before. The young widow, quite young, only three and twenty, a woman of strong intellect who knew life by instinct, as the free animals do, as though she had seen, gone through, understood, and waited every conceivable contingency, and judged them with a wholesome, strict, and benevolent mind, had fallen into the habit of calling to work or chat for an hour in the evening with these friendly neighbours, who would give her a cup of tea. Father Roland, always goaded on by his seafaring craze, 
would question their new friend about the departed captain, and she would talk of him and his voyages and his old-world tales, without hesitation, like a resigned and reasonable woman who loves life and respects death. The two sons, on their return, finding the pretty widow quite at home in the house, forthwith began to court her, less from any wish to charm her than from the desire to cut each other out. Their mother, being practical and prudent, sincerely hoped that one of them might win the young widow, for she was rich, but then she would have liked that the other should not be grieved. Madame Rosemilly was fair, with blue eyes, a mass of light waving hair, fluttering at the least breath of wind, and an alert, daring, pugnacious little way with her, which did not in the least answer to the sober method of her mind. She already seemed to like Jean best, attracted, no doubt, by an affinity of nature. This preference, however, she betrayed only by an almost imperceptible difference of voice and look, and also by occasionally asking his opinion. She seemed to guess that Jean's views would support her own, while those of Pierre must inevitably be different. When she spoke of the doctor's ideas on politics, art, philosophy, or morals, she would sometimes say, "'Your crochet!' Then he would look at her with the cold gleam of an accuser, drawing up an indictment against women, all women, poor weak things. Never till his sons came home had Monsieur Roland invited her to join his fishing expeditions, nor had he ever taken his wife, for he liked to put off before daybreak with his ally, Captain Bossier, a master mariner retired, whom he had first met on the quay at high tides and with whom he had struck up an intimacy, and the old sailor Papagris, known as Jean Bart, in whose charge the boat was left. But one evening of the week before, Madame Rosemilly, who had been dining with them, remarked, "'It must be great fun to go out fishing.' The jeweller, flattered by her interest, and suddenly fired with the wish to share his favourite sport with her, and to make a convert after the manner of priests, exclaimed, "'Would you like to come?' "'To be sure I should.' "'Next Tuesday.' "'Yes, next Tuesday.' "'Are you the woman to be ready to start at five in the morning?' She exclaimed in horror, "'No, indeed, that is too much.' He was disappointed and chilled, suddenly doubting her true vocation. However, he said, "'At what hour can you be ready?' "'Well, at nine. "'Not before?' "'No, not before. Even that is very early.' The old fellow hesitated. He certainly would catch nothing for when the sun has warmed the sea, the fish bite no more. But the two brothers had eagerly pressed the scheme, and organized and arranged everything there and then. So on the following Tuesday, the pearl had dropped anchor under the white rocks of Cap Laev. They had fished till midday, then they had slept a while, and then fished again without catching anything and then it was that Father Roland, perceiving, rather late, that all that Madame Rosemilly really enjoyed and cared for was the sail on the sea, and seeing that his lines hung motionless, had uttered in a spirit of unreasonable annoyance that vehement chaw, which applied as much to the pathetic widow as to the creatures he could not catch. Now he contemplated the spoil, his fish, with the joyful thrill of a miser, 
seeing as he looked up at the sky that the sun was getting low. "'Well, boys,' said he, "'suppose we turn homeward.' The young men hauled in their lines, coiled them up, cleaned the hooks, and stuck them into corks, and sat waiting. Roland stood up to look out like a captain. "'No wind,' said he. "'You will have to pull, young uns.' And suddenly, extending one arm to the northward, he exclaimed, "'Here comes the packet from Southampton!' Away over the level sea, spread out like a blue sheet, vast and shiny and shot with flame and gold, an inky cloud was visible against the rosy sky, in the quarter to which he pointed, and below it they could make out the hull of the steamer, which looked tiny at such a distance and to southward other wreaths of smoke, numbers of them, could be seen, all converging toward the Havre Pier, now scarcely visible as a white streak with the lighthouse, upright, like a horn, at the end of it. Roland asked, Is not the Normandy due to-day? And Jean replied, Yes, to-day. Give me my glass. I fancy I see her out there. The father pulled out the copper tube, adjusted it to his eye, sought the speck, and then, delighted to have seen it, exclaimed, "'Yes, yes, there she is. I know her two funnels. Would you like to look, Madame Rosemilly?' She took the telescope and directed it towards the Atlantic horizon, without being able, however, to find the vessel, for she could distinguish nothing nothing but blue, with a coloured halo round it, a circular rainbow, and then all manner of queer things, winking eclipses which made her feel sick. She said as she returned the glass, "'I never could see with that thing. It used to put my husband in quite a rage. He would stand for hours at the windows, watching the ships pass.' Old Roland, much put out, retorted, then it must be some defect in your eye, for my glass is a very good one. Then he offered it to his wife. Would you like to look? No, thank you. I know beforehand that I could not see through it. Madame Roland, a woman of eight and forty, but who did not look it, seemed to be enjoying this excursion and this waning day more than any of the party. Her chestnut hair was only just beginning to show streaks of white. She had a calm, reasonable face, a kind and happy way with her, which it was a pleasure to see. Her son Pierre was wont to say that she knew the value of money, but this did not hinder her from enjoying the delights of dreaming. She was fond of reading, of novels, and poetry, not for their value as works of art, but for the sake of the tender melancholy mood they would induce in her. A line of poetry, often but a poor one, often a bad one, would touch the little cord, as she expressed it, and give her the sense of some mysterious desire almost realized. And she delighted in these faint emotions which brought a little flutter to her soul, otherwise as strictly kept as a ledger. Since settling at Havre she had become perceptibly stouter, and her figure, which had been very supple and slight, had grown heavier. This day on the sea had been delightful to her. Her husband, without being brutal, was rough with her, as the man who is the despot of his shop is apt to be rough, without anger or hatred. To such men to give an order is to swear. He controlled himself in the presence of strangers, but in private he let loose and gave himself terrible vent, though he was himself afraid of everyone. 
She, in sheer horror of the turmoil, of scenes, of useless explanations, always gave way and never asked for anything. For a very long time she had not ventured to ask Roland to take her out in the boat. So she had joyfully hailed this opportunity, and was keenly enjoying the rare and new pleasure. From the moment when they started, she surrendered herself completely, body and soul, to the soft gliding motion over the waves. She was not thinking. Her mind was not wandering through either memories or hopes. It seemed to her as though her heart, like her body, was floating on something soft and liquid and delicious which rocked and lulled it. When their father gave the word to return, "'Come, take your places at the oars!' She smiled to see her sons, her two great boys, take off their jackets and roll up their shirt-sleeves on their bare arms. Pierre, who was nearest to the two women, took the stroke oar, Jean the other, and they sat waiting till the skipper should say, "'Give way!' for he insisted on everything being done according to strict rule. Simultaneously, as if by a single effort, they dipped the oars, and lying back, pulling with all their might, began a struggle to display their strength. They had come out easily, under sail, but the breeze had died away, and the masculine pride of the two brothers was suddenly aroused by the prospect of measuring their powers. When they went out alone with their father, they plied the oars without any steering, for Roland would be busy getting the lines ready, while he kept a lookout in the boat's course, guiding it by a sign or a word. "'Easy, Jean, and you, Pierre, put your back into it.' Or he would say, "'Now then, number one, come, number two, a little elbow-grease.' Then the one who had been dreaming pulled harder, the one who had got excited eased down and the boat's head came round. But today they meant to display their biceps. Pierre's arms were hairy, somewhat lean but sinewy. Jean's were round and white and rosy, and the knot of muscles moved under the skin. At first Pierre had the advantage. With his teeth set, his brow knit, his legs rigid, his hands clinched on the oar, he made it bend from end to end at every stroke, and the pearl was veering landward. Father Roland, sitting in the bows, so as to leave the stern seat to the two women, wasted his breath, shouting, "'Easy, number one! Pull harder, number two. Pierre pulled harder in his frenzy, and number two could not keep time with his wild stroke. At last the skipper cried, "'Stop her!' The two oars were lifted simultaneously, and then, by his father's orders, Jean pulled alone for a few minutes but from that moment he had it all his own way. He grew eager and warmed to his work, while Pierre, out of breath and exhausted by his first vigorous spurt, was lax and panting. Four times running, Father Roland made them stop while the elder took breath, so as to get the boat into her right course again. Then the doctor, humiliated and fuming, his forehead dripping with sweat, his cheeks white, stammered out, I cannot think what has come over me. I have a stitch in my side. I started very well, but it has pulled me up. Jean answered, Shall I pull alone with both oars for a time? No, thanks. It will go off. And their mother, somewhat vexed, said, Why, Pierre, what rhyme or reason is there in getting into such a state? You are not a child. 
and he shrugged his shoulders and set to once more. Madame Rosemilly pretended not to see, not to understand, not to hear. Her fair head went back with an engaging little jerk every time the boat moved forward, making the fine wayward hairs flutter about her temples. But Father Roland presently called out, Look, the Prince Albert is catching us up. They all looked round. Long and low in the water, with her two raking funnels and two yellow paddle-boxes like two round cheeks, the Southampton packet came ploughing on at full steam, crowded with passengers under open parasols. Its hurrying, noisy paddle-wheels, beating up the water which fell again in foam, gave it an appearance of haste, as of a courier pressed for time, and the upright stem cut through the water, throwing up two thin, translucent waves which glided off along the hull. When it had come quite near the pearl, Father Roland lifted his hat, the ladies shook their handkerchiefs, and half a dozen parasols, eagerly waving on board the steamboat, responded to this salute as she went on her way, leaving behind her a few broad undulations on the still and glassy surface of the sea. There were other vessels, each with its smoky cap, coming in from every part of the horizon towards the short white jetty, which swallowed them up, one after another, like a mouth. And the fishing barks and lighter craft, with broad sails and slender masts, stealing across the sky in tow of inconspicuous tugs, were coming in, faster and slower, towards the devouring ogre, which from time to time seemed to have a surfeit, and spewed out to the open sea another fleet of steamers, brigs, schooners, and three-masted vessels, with their tangled mass of rigging. The hurrying steamships flew off to the right and left over the smooth bosom of the ocean, while sailing vessels, cast off by the pilot tugs which had hauled them out, lay motionless, dressing themselves from the mainmast to the foretops in canvas, white or brown, and ruddy in the setting sun. Madame Roland, with her eyes half-shut, murmured, "'Good heavens, how beautiful the sea is!' and Madame Rosemilly replied with a long sigh, which, however, had no sadness in it. "'Yes, but it is sometimes very cruel, all the same.' Roland exclaimed, "'Look, there is the Normandy, just going in. A big ship, isn't she?' Then he described the coast opposite, far, far away, on the other side of the mouth of the Seine. That mouth extended over twenty kilometres, said he. He pointed out Villeville, Trouville, Oulgate, Luc, Aromanche, the little river of Caen, and the rocks of Calvados, which made the coast unsafe as far as Cherbourg. Then he enlarged on the question of the sandbanks in the Seine, which shift at every tide, so that even the pilots of Kielbeuf are at fault if they do not survey the channel every day. He bid them notice how the town of Havre divided upper from lower Normandy, in Lower Normandy the shore sloped down to the sea in pasture-lands, fields and meadows. The coast of Upper Normandy, on the contrary, was steep, a high cliff, ravined, cleft and towering, forming an immense white rampart all the way to Dunkirk, while in each hollow a village or a port lay hidden. Etrian, Fécamp, Saint-Valéry, Tréport, Dieppe, and the rest. 
the two women did not listen torpid with comfort and impressed by the sight of the ocean covered with vessels rushing to and fro like wild beasts about their den they sat speechless somewhat awed by the soothing and gorgeous sunset roland alone talked on without end he was one of those whom nothing can disturb women whose nerves are more sensitive sometimes feel without knowing why that the sound of useless speech is as irritating as an insult pierre and jean who had calmed down were rowing slowly and the pearl was making for the harbour a tiny thing among those huge vessels when they came alongside of the quay papa gris who was waiting there gave his hand to the ladies to help them out and they took the way into the town a large crowd the crowd which haunts the pier every day at high tide was also drifting homeward madame roland and madame rosemilly led the way followed by the three men as they went up the rue de paris they stopped now and then in front of a milliner's or a jeweller's shop to look at a bonnet or an ornament then after making their comments they went on again in front of the place de la bourse roland paused as he did every day to gaze at the docks full of vessels the bosson du commerce with other docks beyond where the huge hulls lay side by side closely packed in rows four or five deep and masts innumerable along several kilometres of quays the endless masts with their yards poles and rigging gave this great gap in the heart of the town the look of a dead forest above this leafless forest the gulls were wheeling and watching to pounce like a falling stone on any scraps flung overboard a sailor-boy fixing a pulley to a cross-beam looked as if he had gone up there birds nesting will you dine with us without any sort of ceremony just that we may end the day together said madame roland to her friend to be sure i will with pleasure i accept equally without ceremony it would be dismal to go home and be alone this evening pierre who had heard and who was beginning to be restless under the young woman's indifference muttered to himself well the widow is taking root now it would seem for some days past he had spoken of her as the widow the word harmless in itself irritated jean merely by the tone given to it which to him seemed spiteful and offensive the three men spoke not another word till they reached the threshold of their house. It was a narrow one, consisting of a ground floor and two floors above, in the Rue Belle Normande. The maid, Josephine, a girl of nineteen, a rustic servant of all work at low wages, gifted to excess with the startled animal expression of a peasant, opened the door, went upstairs at her master's heels to the drawing-room, which was on the first floor, and then said, a gentleman called three times old roland who never spoke to her without shouting and swearing cried out who do you say called in the devil's name she never winced at her master's roaring voice and replied a gentleman from the lawyers what lawyer why monsieur canoe who else and what did this gentleman say that monsieur canoe will call in himself in the course of the evening Maître Lucanou was Monsieur Roland's lawyer, and in a way his friend, managing his business for him. For him to send word that he would call in the evening, something urgent and important must be in the wind. 
and the four Rolands looked at each other, disturbed by the announcement as folks of small fortune are wont to be at any intervention of a lawyer, with its suggestion of contracts, inheritance, lawsuits, all sorts of desirable or formidable contingencies. The father, after a few moments of silence, muttered, "'What on earth can it mean?' Madame Rosemilly began to laugh. "'Why, a legacy, of course. I am sure of it. I bring good luck.' But they did not expect the death of any one who might leave them anything. Madame Roland, who had a good memory for relationships, began to think over all their connections on her husband's side and on her own, to trace up pedigrees and the ramifications of cousinship. Before even taking off her bonnet, she said, "'I say, father,' she called her husband father at home, and sometimes Monsieur Roland before strangers. "'Tell me, do you remember who it was that Joseph Lebreu married for the second time?' "'Yes, a little girl named Dumanil, a stationer's daughter.' "'Had they any children?' I should think so, four or five at least. Not from that quarter, then. She was quite eager already in her search. She caught at the hope of some added ease dropping from the sky. But Pierre, who was very fond of his mother, who knew her to be somewhat visionary and feared she might be disappointed, a little grieved, a little saddened if the news were bad instead of good, checked her. Do not get excited, mother. There is no rich American uncle. For my part, I should sooner fancy that it is about a marriage for Jean." Everyone was surprised at the suggestion, and Jean was a little ruffled by his brother's having spoken of it before Madame Rosemilly. "'And why for me rather than for you? The hypothesis is very disputable. You are the elder. You, therefore, would be the first to be thought of. Besides, I do not wish to marry.' Pierre smiled sneeringly. Are you in love, then? And the other, much put out, retorted, Is it necessary that a man should be in love because he does not care to marry yet? Ah, there you are. That yet sets it right. You are waiting. Granted that I am waiting, if you will have it so. But old Roland, who had been listening and cogitating, suddenly hit upon the most probable solution. Bless me! What fools we are to be racking our brains! Maître Lucanou is our very good friend. He knows that Pierre is looking out for a medical partnership, and Jean for a lawyer's office, and he has found something to suit one of you." This was so obvious and likely that everyone accepted it. "'Dinner is ready,' said the maid, and they all hurried off to their rooms to wash their hands before sitting down to table. Ten minutes later they were at dinner in the little dining-room on the ground floor. At first they were silent, but presently Roland began again in amazement at this lawyer's visit. For after all, why did he not write? Why should he have sent his clerk three times? Why is he coming himself? Pierre thought it quite natural. An immediate decision is required, no doubt, and perhaps there are certain confidential conditions which it does not do to put into writing. Still they were all puzzled, and all four a little annoyed at having invited a stranger who would be in the way of their discussing and deciding on what should be done. They had just gone upstairs again when the lawyer was announced. Roland flew to meet him. 
"'Good evening, my dear maître,' said he, giving his visitor the title, which in France is the official prefix to the name of every lawyer. Madame Rosemilly rose. "'I am going,' she said. "'I am very tired.' A faint attempt was made to detain her, but she would not consent, and went home without either of the three men offering to escort her, as they always had done. Madame Roland did the honours eagerly to their visitor. "'A cup of coffee, monsieur?' "'No, thank you. I have just had dinner.' "'A cup of tea, then?' "'Thank you. I will accept one later. First we must attend to business.' The deep silence which succeeded this remark was broken only by the regular ticking of the clock, and below stairs the clatter of saucepans which the girl was cleaning, too stupid even to listen at the door. The lawyer went on. "'Did you, in Paris, know a certain Monsieur Maréchal? Léon Maréchal?' Monsieur and Madame Roland both exclaimed at once, "'I should think so!' "'He was a friend of yours?' Roland replied, "'Our best friend, monsieur, but a fanatic for Paris, never to be got away from the boulevard. He was a head clerk in the Exchequer office. I have never seen him since I left the capital, and latterly we have ceased writing to each other. When people are far apart, you know,' the lawyer gravely put in, "'Monsieur Maréchal is deceased.' Both man and wife responded with a little movement of pained surprise, genuine or false, but always ready, with which such news is received. Maître Lucanu went on. My colleague in Paris has just communicated to me the main item of his will, by which he makes your son, Jean, Monsieur Jean Roland, his sole legatee. They were all too much amazed to utter a single word. Madame Roland was the first to control her emotion, and stammered out, "'Good heavens! Poor Léon, our poor friend! Dear me! Dear me! Dead!' The tears started to her eyes, a woman's silent tears, drops of grief from her very soul, which trickled down her cheeks and seemed so very sad, being so clear. But Roland was thinking less of the loss than the prospect announced. Still, he dared not at once inquire into the clauses of the will and the amount of the fortune, so to work round to these interesting facts, he asked, "'And what did he die of, poor Maréchal?' Maître Lucanu did not know in the least. "'All I know is,' said he, "'that dying without any direct heirs, he has left the whole of his fortune, about twenty thousand francs a year, in three per cents, to your second son, whom he has known from his birth up, and judges worthy of the legacy. If Monsieur Jean should refuse the money, it is to go to the foundling hospitals. Old Roland could not conceal his delight, and exclaimed, Sacristi! It is the thought of a kind heart! And if I had had no heir, I would not have forgotten him. He was a true friend. The lawyer smiled. I was very glad, he said, to announce the event to you myself. It is always a pleasure to be the bearer of good news. It had not struck him that this good news was that of the death of a friend, of Roland's best friend, and the old man himself had suddenly forgotten the intimacy he had but just spoken of with so much conviction. Only Madame Roland and her sons still looked mournful. 
She, indeed, was still shedding a few tears, wiping her eyes with her handkerchief, which she then pressed to her lips to smother her deep sobs. The doctor murmured, "'He was a good fellow, very affectionate. He often invited us to dine with him, my brother and me.' Jean, with wide-open, glittering eyes, laid his hand on his handsome fair beard, a familiar gesture with him, and drew his fingers down to the tip of his last hairs, as if to pull it longer and thinner. Twice his lips parted to utter some decent remark, but after long meditation he could only say this. Yes, he was certainly fond of me. He would always embrace me when I went to see him. But his father's thoughts had set off at a gallop, galloping round this inheritance to come. Nay, already in hand. This money lurking behind the door, which would walk in quite soon, to-morrow, at a word of consent. "'And there is no possible difficulty in the way?' he asked. "'No lawsuit? No one to dispute it?' Maître Lecanu seemed quite easy. "'No, my Paris correspondent states that everything is quite clear. Monsieur Jean has only to sign his acceptance.' "'Good. Then, then the fortune is quite clear?' "'Perfectly clear.' "'All the necessary formalities have been gone through?' "'All.' Suddenly the old jeweller had an impulse of shame, obscure, instinctive, and fleeting, shame of his eagerness to be informed, and he added, "'You understand that I ask all these questions immediately, so as to save my son unpleasant consequences which he might not foresee. Sometimes there are debts, embarrassing liabilities, what not? And a legatee finds himself in an inextricable thorn-bush, after all, I am not the heir, but I think first of the little un. They were accustomed to speak of Jean among themselves as the little one, though he was much bigger than Pierre. Suddenly Madame Roland seemed to wake from a dream, to recall some remote fact, a thing almost forgotten that she had heard long ago, and of which she was not altogether sure. She inquired doubtingly, were you not saying that our poor friend Maréchal had left his fortune to my little Jean? Yes, madame. And she went on simply. I am much pleased to hear it. It proves that he was attached to us. Roland had risen. And would you wish, my dear sir, that my son should at once sign his acceptance? No, no, monsieur Roland. Tomorrow, at my office, tomorrow, at two o'clock, if that suits you. Yes, to be sure, yes, indeed, I should think so. Then Madame Roland, who had also risen, and who was smiling after her tears, went up to the lawyer, and laying her hand on the back of his chair, while she looked at him with the pathetic eyes of a grateful mother, she said, And now for that cup of tea, Monsieur Locanu? Now I will accept it with pleasure, Madame. The maid, on being summoned, brought in first some dry biscuits in deep tin boxes, those crisp, insipid English cakes, which seem to have been made for a parrot's beak, and soldered into metal cases for a voyage round the world. Next she fetched some little grey linen doilies, folded square, those tea napkins which in thrifty families never get washed. A third time she came in with the sugar basin and cups. Then she departed to heat the water. They sat waiting. No one could talk. They had too much to think about and nothing to say. 
Madame Roland alone attempted a few commonplace remarks. She gave an account of the fishing excursion, and sang the praises of the pearl and of Madame Rosemilly. "'Charming, charming!' the lawyer said again and again. Roland, leaning against the marble mantel-shelf as if it were winter and the fire burning, with his hands in his pockets and his lips puckered for a whistle, could not keep still, tortured by the invincible desire to give vent to his delight. The two brothers, in two armchairs that matched, one on each side of the centre-table, stared in front of them, in similar attitudes of dissimilar expressions. At last the tea appeared. The lawyer took a cup, sugared it, and drank it, after having crumbled into it a little cake which was too hard to crunch. Then he rose, shook hands, and departed. "'Then it is understood,' repeated Roland, "'tomorrow, at your place, at two? "'Quite so, tomorrow, at two. Jean had not spoken a word. When their guest had gone, silence fell again, till Father Roland clapped his two hands on his younger son's shoulders, crying, "'Well, you devilish lucky dog, you don't embrace me!' Then Jean smiled. He embraced his father, saying, "'It had not struck me as indispensable.' The old man was beside himself with glee. He walked about the room, strummed on the furniture with his clumsy nails, turned about on his heels, and kept saying, "'What luck! What luck! Now that is really what I call luck!' Pierre asked, "'Then you used to know this Maréchal well?' And his father replied, "'I believe! Why, he used to spend every evening at our house!' Surely you remember he used to fetch you from school on half-holidays, and often took you back again after dinner. Why, the very day when Jean was born it was he who went for the doctor. He had been breakfasting with us when your mother was taken ill. Of course we knew at once what it meant, and he set off post-haste. In his hurry he took my hat instead of his own. I remember that because we had a good laugh over it afterward. It is very likely that he may have thought of that when he was dying, and as he had no heir, he may have said to himself, I remember helping to bring that youngster into the world, so I will leave him my savings. Madame Roland, sunk in a deep chair, seemed lost in reminiscences once more. She murmured, as though she were thinking aloud, Ah, he was a good friend, very devoted, very faithful, a rare soul in these days. Jean got up. "'I shall go out for a little walk,' he said. His father was surprised and tried to keep him. They had much to talk about, plans to be made, decisions to be formed. But the young man insisted, declaring that he had an engagement. Besides, there would be time enough for settling everything before he came into possession of his inheritance. So he went away, for he wished to be alone to reflect. Pierre, on his part, said that he too was going out, and after a few minutes followed his brother. As soon as he was alone with his wife, Father Roland took her in his arms, kissed her a dozen times on each cheek, and, replying to a reproach she had often brought against him, said, "'You see, my dearest, that it would have been no good to stay any longer in Paris and work for the children till I dropped, instead of coming here to recruit my health since fortune drops on us from the skies she was quite serious it drops from the skies on jean she said 
But Pierre? Pierre? But he is a doctor. He will make plenty of money. Besides, his brother will surely do something for him. No, he would not take it. Besides, this legacy is for Jean, only for Jean. Pierre will find himself at a great disadvantage. The old fellow seemed perplexed. Well, then, we will leave him rather more in our will. No, that again would not be quite just. Drat it all! he exclaimed. What do you want me to do in the matter? You always hit on a whole heap of disagreeable ideas. You must spoil all my pleasures. Well, I am going to bed. Good night. All the same, I call it good luck. Jolly good luck. And he went off, delighted in spite of everything, and without a word of regret for the friend so generous in his death. Madame Roland sat thinking again in front of the lamp, which was burning out. End of chapter 1